Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Recreation Elevated podcast. This is Caroline. I'm really excited to be back recording a podcast today. It's been a couple months. Um, the team here at the division has been busy with the summer closing out. We had our outdoor recreation summit in Ogden at Weber State University in September. It was an awesome event where we had hundreds, hundreds of people around the state come together to talk about recreation and where they see it going and what they've learned. Um, it was a great couple days. Big shout out to our team spearheaded by India to accomplish those that great conference. She always does an amazing job. Um, looking forward, the grants and planning team is going to be headed to, well, everywhere this uh, November. We're going to take a tour um, with three members of our team, myself, Rachel Toker, and Evan Beitch. We're going to come to 12 or 13 locations throughout the state where we will talk about all things grants. So if you have questions about where you can get your funding, what we can fund, um, and what the timeline is for all of this, please sign up for our workshops. You can go to our website at recreation.utah.gov where we'll have a full information um, about the grant workshop tour, where we'll be going, and the dates for that. So please make sure that you sign up. They are all free, but signups are required. Okay, well with that, I'm really excited today to be talking about um, something that I'm really excited about, um, endurance sports, athletes, and races. Utah is an iconic place filled with so many inspiring mountains and red rock and it's full of you know hundreds of miles of trails and it's just a cool place to push yourself and this summer I had the chance to compete and participate in a variety of different endurance races and as I was reflecting a little bit on the summer I thought you know Utah's really cool because I didn't have to go very far from my front door to compete or participate in these iconic events and so I wanted to highlight a few of them and just talk about like the history of why things started where they started and where they're at now um, a little bit of background on me. I used to run competitively for Utah State. I was on the cross country and track team up there for a couple years and I loved my time. I didn't do, you know, a ton of long distance running up there. I was kind of a mid to long distance runner. So our workouts were 10 to 12 miles maybe. But it was the summer of 2018. I decided to move to Yosemite for a summer job mopping decks at the Big Trees Lodge um, and I knew I just wanted to go and explore the park because it's gorgeous obviously and it was there that I developed my love for long distance running and it was kind of out of necessity I know I was only going to be there for three months and I saw this network of trails that I would just kind of pour over during my breaks during work and say like oh look how I could link up this trail over here to that one over here and what if I did this you dropped me off here and I ran down to the valley and so I schemed up a long run on one of my days off where I was going to run, if you're familiar with Yosemite, from Tunnel View down to the valley um, on the Pahono Trail. And it's about 20 miles long, maybe like four or 5,000 feet of climbing. So it was going to be a long day, and it was by far the longest I had ever run by quite a bit. And I was totally ill-prepared. I brought my cell phone, and that was it. I was like, I know I need to call my friend to pick me up at the end, and that was it. Didn't bring any water, no food. <laughs> so I just start running, no bear spray. I mean, I was not not ready for this day. But, you know, it worked out. No bears attacked me, and I drank from some stream water and never got Giardia. And then some people at the end gave me a bottle of their water, and it was a great day, and I had so much fun. I was exhausted by the end of it, but I was really, you know, kind of enchanted by 
all that I could maybe accomplish now that I could run further distances. And so five years later, I've been able to kind of push myself and signed up for ultra races and, and done things on foot and bike that really test my limits. And this summer was no exception. In fact, it was probably the most I've ever suffered in the mountains. But it was like a majority of the stuff happened all in Utah. And I just realized we're kind of a cool state where people come to push themselves. And people come from all over the world to not only explore, you know, the Red Rock and the beautiful national parks that we have and the incredible snowpack, um, but they want to test themselves on this terrain that um, is really unique to Utah as well. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk just today about some of the really iconic races like Lodajaw and the Wasatch 100 and talk about, you know, places down south and, and where and how those things have become so popular. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'll give some stories about my experience on a few of these routes as well as talk about some really cool individuals that I've learned about in my research. Um, and so yeah, I'm hoping that you guys can either be inspired or just shocked by some of the people that I talk about today and, and hopefully uh, get inspired to go out and, and do your own test of endurance, whether it's a 5K or 100 miles. Um, but yeah, excited for the episode and I hope you enjoy it. So as I was thinking about, you know, people and races and events and routes that I wanted to talk about during this um, episode, I did, you know, what everyone does and threw in a quick Google search after I'd compiled a list to see if there's anything else I was missing. And there is always something else that you're missing. Um, I threw in just a Google search about like, I think I said, Utah endurance athletes, simple. And one of the first articles that popped up was from um, the Deseret News in 2019. And it was about this guy that I'd never heard of. And I feel like this is so typical of endurance athletes that they're just kind of these like like they just live in the mountains and nobody really knows about them and they don't make a big deal about it until people find out what they're doing and they're like oh this is actually insane um so this guy's name is Ian Ferris and the article says very clearly that he did not want to be interviewed until his wife was like no you should just do it and like a bunch of friends had told people about what he was doing and anyway back in 2019 Ian accomplished two of the greatest like endurance events that Utah has to offer in the same weekend. So he did the Wasatch 100, which is a 100-mile endurance race that stretches from Kaysville all the way to Midway. It ends in Soldier Hollow. And it was started back in 1980 with a group of like five people that wanted to run it. There was one woman, four guys, and it was actually the second 100-mile race in the United States. The first one was Western States, which started just like three years prior to the Wasatch 100, which was in 1980. Um, this guy named Richard Reese was like, you know what we should do? We should do a 100-mile race. He'd heard about the Western States. I think he had actually gone and run it, came back home to his home mountains in Utah and kind of contrived this plan of a route that would take them all the way across, you know, a large section of the central Wasatch. And people thought they were crazy. And it was like this very hush-hush deal where like five people started, none of them finished. None of them really knew what the route was. There was not aid stations. There was not any sort of timing. It was just like, hey, see if you can run 100 miles. And the crazy thing is that now it's like this giant lottery system that you have to put your name in a year in advance if you want a chance to even have your name drawn to be one of the 300 participants of this really incredible iconic race. 
anyway, so Ian does this. And like I say, back then, it's kind of this unofficial, just like a bunch of people doing it. And now it's this really giant, like, accomplishment. Any Anytime you run 100 miles, it's a crazy accomplishment. But um, to do it and then to do that on top of the Logan to Jackson or Lodija bike race, which is a 200-mile bike race. It's on the road. You drive from Logan, Utah. Or, sorry, excuse me, not drive. It would be nice of a long you know, it'd be a long drive, but it would be an even longer bike ride. You start in Logan and you end in Jackson, Wyoming. So it's about 200 miles. You climb 10,000 or so feet. And Ian starts the Wasatch 100 on a Friday morning and manages to finish it in less than 24 hours. And he knew that that was kind of the time cutoff because he needed to drive from Midway all the way to Logan to start the race, to start Lodija before it started. So he ran for 23 or so some odd hours, excuse me, and then got to the start line in Logan at like 7.30 and was just in time to start the, the Lodija race. And so then he ended up biking Lodija in about 12 hours. So he'd been moving for like 40 hours at this point, doing some of the most in, like intense endurance events that Utah, again, has to offer. And... It's just remarkable to me that this is like the standard. Like that was obviously the first, of course, of course, that's the first thing that comes up when I Google endurance athletes in Utah. And it's something I've never even like heard of. I've never heard of this guy. Um, just like an excerpt from the, uh, the Wasatch 100, which if you have a chance to go to their website, I would like highly recommend it because they have so much information about the course, about the history of it. They've done interviews with like all the first time runners of the race. Um, the interview, her name was Laurie Statton and she was the first woman to run it, um, back in 1980. And she just talks about how nobody really knew about other races going on. They kind of asked her like, how did it feel to be one of the first women to run a hundred miles in the U S and she was like, well, it just, I just did it. I didn't really know what was going on in California at the Western States. And here's actually just a little excerpt from that, from that interview. And, uh, it looks like the first woman finished Western States. Um, I think it was like 1978, one woman finished. And then uh -huh. in 1979, five finished. So by the time 1980 rolled around, um, in the previous two years that had only been six women finish hundred mile trail races. And so I wondered, did you have a, a sense that you were a bit of a, in addition to being a first-time participant in the Wasatch, that you were also a pioneer as far as uh, as uh, women ultra ultra marathoners went? Well, you know, I really um, back in those days there was not a whole lot of communication between. There was only Western states before, like you said, before Wasatch, and then Wasatch came. And then after Wasatch, Old Dominion came, and then the, uh, Leadville came, and that's when we had the um, Grand Slam. But there wasn't a whole lot of uh, communication or awareness of, of other events. And we didn't have a formalized um, you know, way of telling stories about what we'd done or what anybody, what anybody else had done. And so I really wasn't even aware of... Uh, the, the women who had finished Western States. And they have a, a few other interviews on their website just about, you know, the first-timers that raced it and the route finding that they had to encounter and the status of the trails. And 
Anyway, really cool, just little two or three minute excerpts if you want to go and learn more about the Wasatch. Yeah, the quote that I wanted to say is, the primitive and isolated nature of the course of the Wasatch 100 is both its beauty and its challenge, for it requires the individual runner to rely primarily on himself or herself rather than the race's support systems, which I think could be very well said for the first time that it was run in 1980. Wasatch is not just distance and speed, it is adversity, adaption, and perseverance. And one other cool thing about the Wasatch 100, because it was one of the first 100-mile races ever established in the United States, it is now one of the five races which is included in the Grand Slam. So it's kind of this unofficial, like, you know, if you run all five of the first 100-mile races, you've accomplished the Grand Slam. So the first one was the Western States, which um, starts in Tahoe. Um, so you run all through kind of like um, the central California area. And then there's four or there's three other races um, besides the Wasatch and the Grand Slam. There's one in Vermont, California, and Virginia. Um, and then, sorry, in Colorado, I mentioned the California one. So if you run all five of those, it's kind of like this, you've collected all of your trophies across the country. And I think it is cool that a lot of them, you know, they're all over the country. So you're not just in the West with all these mountains, but then you go to Virginia and you go to Vermont. Um, so anyway, really, really cool. Just the history of the Wasatch 100, that it was one of the first races, um, of this length in the country. I think similar to bike racing, running has kind of been taking off of European standards and Europeans have always been doing kind of these long endurance races, a lot longer than the United States have at least. So the people that started Lodija, David Byrne and Jeff Keller, David was just a student at Utah State at the time and Jeff Keller was the owner of Sunrise Cyclery, which is actually the first place or the place I bought my first bike. That was the Lodija was started in 1983 as well. So it's kind of fun that both these races started very similar time frames to one another. Um, like I said, Lodija is 200 miles, 9,800 feet of climbing. And these two gentlemen that started the race were inspired by European races, kind of that like staged race mentality that we see during like the Tour de France, for example. Um, and so Lodija copies and emulates that same sort of like there's legs, you can do it in a relay. Um, really, really cool. I've yet to do either one of these events. And I have a lot of friends that have done and accomplished them. My brother Spencer was um, a finisher of the Wasatch 100 while I was in high school. And I vividly remember him literally crawling across the finish line, like got on his hands and knees. And I think he was being a bit dramatic, but the smell on him I'm not being dramatic when I say, like, it was the worst I've ever smelt on anybody. So props to Spencer for finishing, but I think uh, we might have to wait a little bit for my courage to increase to put my name in that lottery because it is no joke. And then I've had quite a few friends do Lodja as well. Um, really just an incredible accomplishment, and we'll see. We'll see if either one of those get done in the future. Okay, moving down south, or at least moving down, you know, kind of the the north to south range of the state, I wanted to touch on another um, event. I don't, we're not going to call it a race because it's not a race, but it's called the Whirl. And if you've heard of the Whirl, you know that it stands for the Wasatch Ultimate Ridge Linkup. So it's W-U-R-L. And this one has a tender spot in my heart right now because... <laughs> 
I attempted this event this summer with a couple friends of mine and it was the hardest physical thing I've ever tried to do and I didn't even finish it. So the whirl is this kind of contrived um, route or ridge link up that was invented in 2004 from a Utah or Salt Lake native, Jared Campbell. Um, Jared's known for doing incredible feats of endurance. He, um, yeah, he's won and raced and done a lot of these things on foot. Um, and so he wanted to kind of come back home and see what he could do to create a route that would really test him and everyone else that tried to follow in his footsteps. So the whirl, the route goes from Ferguson Canyon. This is all in the central Wasatch and it loops kind of this half or horseshoe shape around Little Cottonwood Canyon. So you head up Ferguson Canyon, which is a small canyon in between Big and Little. So this is on the north side of Little Cottonwood Canyon. You climb all the way up. You climb about 6,000 feet in the first six miles and top out at Twin Peaks. And then you take the ridgeline all the way around. So you hit the peaks of Dromedary and Mount Superior. You head down Cardiff Pass until you get to Twin and Catherine's Pass. And then you climb and do the, on the south side, you do Devil's Castle. You summit... Um, where the tram is up at Snowbird, a hidden peak. You hit Red Baldy and White Baldy, Pfeifferhorn, Lone Peak, and then you drop down into Bell's Canyon and take that all the way out. So the stats on this are like 33 to 36 miles, 19 to 20,000 feet of climbing. Um, feels like everyone's route always ends up with a little bit of discrepancy there, but that's the gists of it. Um, it's, it's just insane. I mean, it typically takes people... 25 to 35 hours to complete the fastest known times um, are insane there was a woman that did it there's actually a, a married couple the Dorius couple that has accomplished it they both have the fastest known times for men and women at 14 hours I want to say for the men and about 19 hours for the women which is just mind-boggling because when I did it or attempted to do it I got to the Pfeifferhorn saddle which is probably like three quarters of the way done maybe in like 25 hours or something. <laughs> and then had to bail down the Red Pine Lake to back to the car and was a crying just mess. It was the, like, it was the worst day, but that's another story for another time. Um, it's been accomplished and people have come from all over the world to accomplish this and, and do this activity, this event. I don't really want to call it an activity because it just isn't like activities connotate a fun time. And this just feels more like a not fun time. Um, my brother, again, he's kind of my guru in the suffer department all growing up. He was the 10th person ever to accomplish the world back in 2014 and then ever since then, there's been dozens, if not hundreds of people that have either attempted it or accomplished or finished the route. People like Alex Honnold, you know, one of the greatest rock climbers that people, you know, come to know and love has come and done it. Um, and guess who else has done it? Our guy, Ian Ferris in 2017. So he's, he's doing all this stuff, which I think is also very common for people in the ultra endurance scene, if you know you've done one thing, you want to try and do another thing as well and test your limits in various ways. The world to me was like so different than any sort of other race that I had done. I've done ultras before, 
but you're running during an ultra run, right? Or walking or sitting down and crying, but at least you're running, you're on a trail, you're, you're not route finding. The world is very different. So it's not a trail, you're off route or not off route, you're off trail most of the time scrambling meaning you're kind of like using all fours to try and get up and over rocks there's a little bit of some some technical moves I think the hardest part for me was that you know I was just so exhausted mentally and physically because you have to be on your mental game the whole time like one wrong move and you could fall hundreds of feet and so having to be like mentally on the whole time was really exhausting for me um one crazy fact, another person that's accomplished the world is named um, Carl Fisher. And, um, excuse me, Christopher Fisher. <laughs> I know another guy named Carl Fisher. Christopher Fisher is from Colorado. So he's not a Utah native, but he did come to Utah to accomplish an insane feat where he not only did the world once, but he did it twice back to back. So, you know, the typical route people take, like I said, 25 to 35 hours to do from Ferguson Canyon all the way to Bells. As soon as he got to Bells, he turned around and just did it all the way back. And is that's just insane, right? Like nobody has ever accomplished that since. And I don't know if anyone ever will because it's pretty intense um, to do it once. So to do it twice, back to back, shout out to Christopher Fisher. Christopher Fisher also has the record for the most vertical feet climbed in a month on foot. And guess where he did it? In Utah, Grandeur Peak. Um, it's again, kind of in the central Wasatch. It's the west face of Grandeur faces the I-15. It's this, you know, just big mountain you can see from the freeway. And it has an elevation gain of, I wanna say about three, 3,200 feet probably in three miles. So it's a, you know, your bang for your buck is pretty severe, right? You're climbing a thousand feet per mile. And so he came and just lapped that. Like every day he would lap it 10 or 12 times so that he could get, you know, his vertical gain up. He averaged, I think, 10,000 feet every day um, to end up with a record of 400,246 vertical feet. That's 538 linear miles and translate to summiting Mount Everest more than 13 times. So that's insane. Christopher Fisher, props to you. And thanks for coming to Utah for accomplishing your incredible goal. Okay, we're going to keep moving down south and hit up another event, going back to the bike. Um, and obviously there's a ton of varieties of endurance events. I think the most common are on foot or bike. That's the two that I focused on. Um, but we know people doing like pack rafting trips or doing rowing trips or, you know, if you're into sort of like kite surfing, which in Utah is not as popular, but, you know, I want to recognize that there's lots of varieties and ways in which humans have decided to be in pain. And this was just a couple of the ones that Utah has to offer. So another race that I um, have been looking at for a few years is something called the Crusher in the Tushers. Um, the Tusher Mountains are located um, just east of Beaver, Utah, so in Beaver County. If you're heading down just on the I-15, you've passed the signs that say Beaver, best water on earth, and it is true. It has the best water on earth. It also has one of the most grueling gravel races on earth. 
So the Crusher and the Tushers is a 69-mile gravel race that climbs 10,000 feet through the Tusher Mountains. If you're not sure what gravel racing is, welcome to the club. I didn't know what it was either until two years ago when I bought my first gravel bike. And it's a kind of a mixture, picture a road bike um, with a tire that's kind of in between a road bike size or a mountain bike. So it's not going to have tons of knobs like a mountain bike would. Not going to be super burly, but it also isn't a tiny little skinny tire like a road bike. It's somewhere in between, but there is no suspension on these bikes. You are the suspension. Your arms are the suspension because most of the gravel races are taking place on dirt roads. So there's some discrepancy. Some of them have really bad washboard in them. A lot of them have rocks. There's, you know, washout in lots of places. So it's it's kind of this hybrid situation. And the founder of the race, Burke Swindlehurst, started this in 2011. And his idea was he wanted to, he's a professional cyclist before this, before he started this event. He wanted to get bikers in all sorts of um, disciplines together. So he's like, I really like mountain biking. I want a road bike, but I love cyclocross. What, what can I do? So he said he wanted to kind of, you know, let's create a race that brings all these together because there really is room for everybody in this race. If you're a climber, you can get really good results in this race. If you're on good on technical um, technical terrain, this will be also a strong suit for you. I rode this race this last July, and it is brutal. There is a reason they call it the crusher. It crushes you down. <laughs> and um, it's really cool because Burke wanted to have it be a mountaintop finish but it starts in the middle of the city down in Beaver. And so you start in town square, you bike all the way up and do a couple, I mean, you're climbing the whole time, basically. So you go up, descend, do a loop, come back up, and then you finish at Eagle Mountain Ski Resort, which is a, a local ski resort down in the Tushers. And so you finish at the ski resort, it's this big party, but then you still have 20 miles to go back down to the start where your car is parked. And although it's all downhill, that was probably one of the most brutal parts of the race is like, I have to get back on my bike. Like I've been riding for seven, six, seven hours at this point and I have to get back on my bike. Luckily they had tacos at the top and, you know, was able to revitalize myself before the descent. Um, I think another thing I really love about these races is that it puts places on the map. A lot of people don't know where Beaver, Utah is or what the Tushers even are, that they're a mountain range that has 12,000 foot peaks. And these races really highlight the terrain that Utah has to offer in all varieties. Um, I had I'd been to Beaver like once or twice before, but never to that extent. I hadn't explored um, any of the dirt and gravel roads up there until I did the Crusher. And I don't know if I'll be back, but I'm certainly glad I did it. People go back every year, and it's really cool that it's become this, you know, people from all over are coming to race this this gravel race. And trying to get a hotel down in Beaver for that weekend was like I booked seven months in advance and was lucky to get a room. So anyway, really, really cool. Shout out to Burke for making that race happen and seeing its success and it's growing. Okay, we're going to keep going south. And we're going to head down to the Red Rock of Southern Utah, which is one of my favorite places. Um, 
so obviously people know there's just so many there's so many things we could talk about there's the Zion Traverse and there's the Cocopelli Trail and like there's just there's the whole enchilada which is like an endurance event in itself even if it's a downhill mountain bike trail it's like a full-blown endurance day but I did want to highlight one the White Rim Trail so the White Rim White Rim Trail is located in Canyonlands National Park and it's an incredible place down there. The Colorado River is running right through the, the whole park, and it's, it's gorgeous. Um, the White Rim Trail was constructed in the 1950s by the Atomic Energy Commission. So they actually put the road in to try and give access to for uranium mining. mining. There was thought that there was going to be great uranium mining down there, and they didn't have great success. The re- all the uranium mines closed fairly soon after the road was put in, so it's abandoned, but this road still remains. And again, this is not an official event or race that happens down there. There usually aren't things allowed in national parks. In fact, they are not allowed in national parks to have official sanctioned races. So... They don't have a race, but again, it's like an event. It's um, this route that's 100 miles with about 6,000 feet of climbing um, because it's similar to the Grand Canyon. You start on the plateau and then drop all the way down into the canyon where the river runs. And excuse me, I think I said Colorado, but it is the Green River that runs through the canyon. And then you climb back up. Um, so it's, it's really fun because you get to start on a downhill and then you climb on the end, which is pretty brutal after you've ridden, you know, 80 miles on your bike. But I just love that this this um, route exists because it makes it accessible for of a wide variety of people. The, the road is totally accessible on a four-wheel drive vehicle. So you could come down with support crew, spend three or four days camping down there, riding your bike or just driving through it and seeing, you know, 100 miles of this beautiful canyon. In 2022, actually just last year, a group from the National Ability Center took four adaptive athletes down to the White Rim to run it, or sorry, excuse me, to ride it on their adaptive cycles. And it's really, really inspiring. We had um, one of the directors from OutRide um, come and speak to us at our trails conference last year and give us a little sneak preview of their trailer and it's called tread setters and it's coming to theaters they filmed this whole experience of all these athletes down there so anyway it's excuse me not coming to theaters but it's going to be on youtube next year so if you want to go and see tread setters about the story of a mixture of professional athletes riding with these adaptive riders um it's incredible so go check it out um I had an experience on the White Rim a couple years ago with some friends where my uh, my bike, the bike arm, my crank arm on my bike just completely broke off. And luckily we had a support vehicle that, you know, we could throw my bike in the car and I could ride somebody else's bike. But I didn't have any shoes because I was riding my clips on my mountain bike. So I had to ride the rest of it in my Tiva slippers. So that was, that was a highlight for me. Um, yeah, I think... The last person I wanted to talk about um, is James Lawrence, better known as the Iron Cowboy. And I wanted to finish on him because if you know the Iron Cowboy, you know he's done an incredible amount of physical feats, right? Like his whole 50 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days was unheard of. It was incredible. So he lives in Utah. He's from Utah. 
and he decided that he wanted an even bigger challenge than this 50-50-50 project he completed a few years ago. And so two years ago, he decided he wanted to do 100 Ironmans. So the Ironman race distance is a 2.7-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and then a marathon. So he was going to do that every single day for 100 days. And I think my favorite thing about endurance sports and all of this is the support that you feel from a community. I used to race competitively in high school and college, and every time at the start line, you kind of are sizing everybody up and making sure like, oh, am I, did I train harder than you did? Nobody's really friendly with each other. You're just kind of nervous. The ultra scene is totally different. At the start of every ultra, everyone's laughing. People are making jokes. They're talking about how much they're going to hate themselves by the end of the day. And I feel like James's, um, the Iron Cowboy's accomplishment that he did here in Utah was so epitomizing of that idea where people were out there every day with him riding or swimming or running they wanted to just be with him and show support for him and I really love that that the endurance aspect of these events just creates community people want to see people achieve their goals and every time I've done you know whether it's an ultra run or one of these kind of crazy events like the whirl or the white rim I've just had people come and support and be so excited for me and, you know, hike up at 3 a.m. to bring us food or drive the support vehicle next to us, um, whatever it may be. And I think that's really, really inspiring. And Utah's just a good place for all these people to come together because there's so many of them. One quick Google search and you're going to find a whole slew of articles about people doing incredible things and trying to make it, you know, an inclusive environment for everybody to do it, sharing information and beta about what they've done and how they've done it so that everybody can give it a go. Because I think it's, you know, that's how the sport progresses. Everybody's going to get better if we can all share information and share what we've done and how you would do it differently. So anyway, that was kind of a fun thing for me. I love this stuff. I live for, you know, days out in the mountains with friends and doing hard things and I'm excited that ski season's just around the corner so we can start doing more skiing but anyway thanks for listening I hope that everybody's having a great fall and look forward to the next recreation elevated podcast even if it is going to be in four months